Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Let's begin in verse 14, just just for reminder. Then as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast in the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn and the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, Has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king. I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones." Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, that is, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We previously read of Darius's unwillingness to free Daniel from the penalty of an ill-thought-out decree. 
As one writer says, thus fear of man, iniquitous laws, foolish and rash measures, and malignant accusers may concur in extorting the sentence of condemnation against those who deserve all possible honor and reward, end quote. Darius had the power to free Daniel, but did not think it expedient or wise in the face of his nobles to do so. They were looking to see if he would keep his word and power intact by prosecuting the person who would not worship him, even Daniel. Therefore, he had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. What we see here is actually the fear of man. Even though he's a great king in sense of power, he had the ability to let Daniel go free. But he feared man in the moment. He feared man, those nobles who had deceivingly put him in this position. But you can also say, in a sense, he feared the possibility of his own weakness and how he might look weak before men. He was not considering that this was an opportunity for submission to the sovereignty of the one true living God. He was only thinking about how he might be looked upon as weak and powerless if he did not go through with the sentence of the decree. Well, why was Daniel thrown in the lion's den? It was not just the fear of man. But number one, this morning, Daniel was persecuted for obeying the first commandment. Daniel was persecuted for obeying the first commandment. If we really look at it carefully, this is Daniel obeying the first four commandments in essence. But it certainly is the first commandment because Daniel was not going to put anyone above God. We can see here that the king followed a faulty command. The king placed himself above the one true God. And Daniel would not obey him. You have to see this contrast. This is a king who has these people thinking he needs to be exalted and convinced the king that he needs to be exalted, even to be exalted above the one true living God. And when he okays the decree... It's then Daniel who says, no, I will not obey because this is ultimately an issue of true worship and I will only worship one living true God, the one and none other. Not only had the king placed himself above the one true God and Daniel disobeyed him, but the king placed himself against the one true God. And Daniel stood his ground. You have to recognize this is not just one trying to elevate themselves, but this is one who is actually coming against the one true living God. The nobles were complicit in it, very complicit. And then on top of that, the king agreed to that, and he's actually coming against the one true living God. And it's Daniel who stands his ground. He says, no. I won't worship you. I'll only worship the one true living God. 
Therefore, the king, fearing the possibility of looking weak, the king sentenced Daniel to the lion's den. So the king followed a faulty command, and the king sentenced Daniel to the lion's den. We have to think about this sentence in its context. This is actually a sentence that comes about in Daniel's life because Daniel did not succumb to temptation. You have to think it's got to be a little bit tempting. Daniel knew what was coming. If he didn't obey the decree of the king, it's got to be a little bit tempting to say, you know what, just for these 30 days, I I won't do this. I'll just give this up. I'll give this prayer and praise and worship of my God up for these 30 days until this decree is over and these men won't you know, find me guilty and I won't put myself before Darius in any way that I could be sentenced to death and so I'll just, I'll just give this up. And Daniel says no. Not only does he disobey, he stands his ground, but this is not succumbing to temptation. This is saying no to temptation. This is evidence that true believers do have the ability by the very Spirit of God to say no to temptation, to walk away from it. We have that by God's grace in us, that ability. It's not natural to us in our sin natures, but it is that which is enabled in us by the very power of the Spirit. We need to note this is not the only time that Daniel has not succumbed to temptation. Daniel said no to sudden temptation when it came to the food of Nebuchadnezzar's court. That was suddenly presented to him and he said no to that. But not only does he not succumb to sudden temptation, but he doesn't succumb to subtle temptation as one writer puts it. It's the temptation not to pray three times a day. For those 30 days. I mean think about how easy that could have been. Just to say. "Ah, It's just 30 days. I mean. Let's picture this. I'm going to give it up for 30 days. And I'm not going to be put in the lion's den. Isn't there some reasoning in there. That we, we might be able to reason out of that. Well I'm not going to worship God for 30 days. Because I might be put into the lion's den. Let's be honest a minute. Let's not be hyper-spiritual or super-spiritual or act like we're all so above everything and all of these kinds of things. If, If I have some government official confronting me and saying, just don't pray and worship for 30 days and you'll be fine. But if we catch you, we're going to put you before the firing squad. Wouldn't there be a moment in your mind that you think, ah, it's just 30 days. The subtlety even comes that every time Daniel goes to pray three times a day, there was this subtle temptation every single time. I, I don't have to do this, do I? One writer says there are many strong believers who cannot be knocked down by strong and sudden temptation. 
but whose resistance can be eroded away. It is a known tactic of the evil one to seek to wear out the saints of the Most High. He knows well enough that constant dripping wears away a stone. Much of his temptation is therefore not violent, but subtle and gentle temptation. He brings the same suggestions again and again and again until it makes an impression. He sows the idea that a certain sin may not be harmful. Well, that, I, I can walk that fine line. That won't be that harmful. I know there's this outright thing that I'm not supposed to do, but if I walk really close over here, I'm okay. Speaking of Satan, he says, evil as he is, he is well able to appear as the angel of light. More often than not, a believer's resistance crumbles before such approaches and his testimony is ruined. It's the subtle, gentle temptations. They just hit us just a little, nudge us, take a finger and push us just a little. And over time, we're not being watchful. We're not paying attention as Peter wrote to us and told us to, right? Be on the alert! Be aware! And we just get nudged. And we succumb to the gentle temptation. We see here that Daniel doesn't do that. Neither the sudden temptation in his early young life. Because when you're young... Sudden temptations sometimes take us over because we're very impetuous when we're young. But sometimes as we get older, we get tired. And the gentle temptations, the subtle temptations nudge us just a little. And we're not as on guard. We're not as alert all the time. We're tired. We're tired. We've been fighting a long time. And it's those subtle temptations that push us and we fall. Just a practical example. I mean, how about the subtle temptation just to miss one Lord's Day worship? It's just one. How many times has the one become two and the two become three? And maybe we come back after the third, but then we miss the one and the two, and we come back and then we miss the one, the two, the three, and the four. It's just the subtle temptations. It's okay. It's just one. It's just one. Certainly sometimes there are serious providential matters that we have to deal with, but sometimes we're just tired. I just don't want to get out of bed today. It's the subtle temptations. Thankfully, here we see an example of how the Spirit of God works in the life of a believer, even so that they can be strengthened in such a way that even though they may be tired, they can, they can push off the temptation of the flesh. They can push off the temptation of the devil. Now, we know the devil's not everywhere at once, he's not omnipresent. But we know that his nature lurks in our very sinful flesh because 
We are of our father, the devil, born, conceived in sin in our mother's womb. So although Satan may not be with us, his ideas are right there in our sinful natures and flesh, prodding us to succumb. But Daniel's an example. Be encouraged. The Spirit of God does work in the life of a believer. We may have to strive in, in, in truth and grace, and yet that striving will produce those things of the Spirit that we will say, No, no, I will not do that, which is against God's law. We see that Daniel did not give in, and he is still in the lion's den. That's interesting, isn't it? Daniel had walked faithfully throughout these different governments and kings and all of the pressures of the world that Daniel was dealing with. And, and you have to remember, Daniel's no small figure here. He's a higher up in, in great kingdoms. He's got a lot of pressure on him, dealing with all of the things of the world around him, walking among all types of sin in a very pagan culture. He obeys God, and he's still in the lion's den. Another writer says, the only way to escape the devil is to face him up. There is no way to avoid falling into his clutches and to remain free from his power, except we be steadfast in the faith, like Peter tells us. We have to recognize that Daniel's forthright no to temptation has forced the devil to leave him alone. Well, that was an interesting phrase. And then he follows it up with this. He says, it is true that he is in the lion's den, but at least he does not have to endure satanic company there. As we shall see in a few moments, the company was much better. The Lord sent his angel. A lot better company than satanic company. Well, upon being thrown in the lion's den, the king knows himself. He's been concerned all the way along. He's exerted himself to rescue Daniel in verse 14. He's confronted by these men, and in verse 16 it says, Then the king gave orders. Once he gave the orders, the king knew himself. There was only one place of trust. The king knew Daniel must trust in God alone. The king knew Daniel must trust in God alone. That's interesting, isn't it? Here's an all-powerful king. He's got all this power right at his fingertips. And yet he says, carry out the sentence. And the only place he knows to turn is to tell Daniel, you must turn to your God. The king told Daniel, turn to him, trust him. Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. The, the king not only had told Daniel this, but we have a record here that the king was so concerned about putting Daniel in the lion's den, he has no entertainment before him. 
He goes home and he fasts and he barely even sleeps. Reading one writer, I, I don't remember who it was, but it was interesting, just at the very end of a paragraph, they, they noted, uh, even the wealthy and the kings must have trouble sleeping. Because if you note throughout all of Daniel here, every one of the kings has been having trouble sleeping. Dreams and visions have come before them that have kept them awake. Fear and trepidation. And even here now, this king can't sleep because he knows he's been a part of putting Daniel in the lion's den and sentence him to death. Another writer notes, but there was no solving of Darius's dilemma. He has nothing more than a weak and he is nothing more than a weak and anemic king who has made an ill-considered decree and is now bemoaning his stupidity. He cries pitifully as he commits Daniel to the den, expressing his deepest hope that God will step in to deliver him. Even the king has come to his end at this point. He's brought to the end of himself. He's saying, I don't have anything else here. It must be God who can do this. Daniel, you've trusted in him. You go to him. You trust in him now. As he couldn't sleep and he had to fast all night, he wakes up the next morning and he runs to the lion's den. We see in him going to the lion's den the context of a man having hope in nothing else but something outside of himself. When he had come near to the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lion's? Here's a recognition it's something outside of himself. He has no authority here in the sense of once Daniel was in the lion's den, there was nothing else to be done. Because the king knew he couldn't stop the lions. Right? The king wouldn't have jumped in in front of those lions. He knows that would have been of no good. I don't know if you've ever uh, you know, watched National Geographic or read anything about lions, but... Um, you don't intentionally get right in front of one. Um, there's not a time really that they're not really that hungry. If the opportunity presents itself, they're going to eat you. Um, you know, you might catch one who's really, really sleepy and you could walk by it and not have a problem. Or maybe catch one right after they had a really big meal, maybe. But something hopefully in our minds says... I don't think I would put myself in front of these lions. And the king knows, I can't do anything now. But even while he's hoping for Daniel, that his God saved him, note how he speaks of Daniel. He speaks glowingly of Daniel's God, but he also speaks kindly of how Daniel has constantly served his God. What he recognized here was a man of consistency. The king himself 
as he's coming to the lion's den, hoping that Daniel is alive, he's recognizing not only that Daniel's God would be the one to save him, but he's recognizing I've been a part of putting a, a, a faithful man into this lion's den. Darius had noticed Daniel's lifestyle. It ought to be a thought for us as believers that we would impress the world with Christian consistency in our lives more than anything else. It's not saying that we are going to be perfect or that we won't fail, but sometimes we have to recognize that our greatest tool that we have as believers is to seek to live consistent Christian lives before men. Even the king noticed it. Even the king noticed it. Well, secondly, this morning, Daniel was preserved according to faith in God alone. Daniel was preserved according to faith in God alone. He was persecuted for obeying the first commandment, but Daniel was preserved according to faith in God alone. Notice here in Daniel's answer to the king, he tells him that my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. It's God who shut the lion's mouths. He did it by sending one of his servants to do it. But Daniel's recognizing ultimately this servant, this angel came from God. And God shut the lion's mouths. Daniel is recognized right here as alive according to God's plan. It tells us very plainly that nothing can thwart the plan of God. Nothing. Nothing. And Daniel's found alive in this lion's den. It's Darius' servants who served Daniel up to the lions. And it's God's servant who shut the mouths of the lions. King Darius had his purpose, but God had his. And God's purpose is always greater and nothing will ever stop it now I want you to think about that for just a moment now I'm going to put it in some of our modern American ideology anybody's worried about George Soros don't be worried about him don't worry about Bill Gates I don't care what little group of billionaires they got and what they're working on and they're going to shoot people up with some computer chip and we're all going to turn it whatever. Whatever they're saying is happening behind the scenes. Don't worry about all that. They will not thwart the plan of God. They won't do it. I'm telling you right now, if Bill Gates does not bow the knee to God Almighty, he ought to be very careful because the day is coming where he will bow the knee. I don't care what kind of money he's got. I don't care what kind of foundation he's got. 
I'm praying for his soul because if he does not bow the knee to God Almighty through the Lord Jesus Christ alone, he will stand judged rightly. And God's vengeance will be poured out on him. And none of us should be excited about that for him. But it's true. George Soros, with that little grin on his face and whatever he does, he better watch out. I'm telling you, folks, these are words of encouragement to us and how God controls all things. The act of a king is thwarted and God's servant is saved. That's amazing stuff. Well, the work of God is very obvious. Daniel was unharmed according to God's plan. He was found with no visible wounds on him. He was unharmed. And it was Daniel who was trusting according to God's plan. As one writer notes, he understood that the chief requisite for a godly man was the having of faith. As for us to this day, the greatest essential of the Christian life is faith. So it was in the days of old, and true men of God understood the principle. And we should understand it too. Do we have faith that our God has a purpose and plan beyond even what we understand? And that no one will stop him? No one will get in his way? No one will even cause him to pause? He is working all things, all things, according to the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is his glory. And no one will stop him, the true righteous holy God, from gaining his glory. Well, not only did God shut the mouths of the lions, but God shut the mouths of the accusers. God shut the mouths of the accusers. The king sentenced the accusers to death. And the king sentenced the accusers' families to death. Now this ought to give us pause for a moment. Not only are these accusers put to death, but their families are put to death. We have to recognize that, first of all, they were sentenced to death by a sovereign ruler, one that is King Darius himself, his sovereign. We know ultimately God did it. But they were sentenced to death by a sovereign ruler and they were sentenced to death for conspiracy to commit murder. They were paying for an actual crime which they committed. Now this is something our society is absolutely losing. We need to pray for our leaders that they would get a real stroke of momentary genius and realize you have to deal with crime. You cannot let crime go unpunished. It needs to be punished rightly. We need to pray. We need to remind them. You need to write to your congressional leaders. You need to remind them of the importance of these things. And here we see a king recognizing that he was put in a bad situation 
by people with bad intentions, and their intention was a conspiracy to commit murder. And now, once Daniel is pulled out and saved by his God, this king puts them to death. He has a sovereign right to do so, and I would say by the law of God, he has not only a right but a responsibility to bring about that punishment. But we have to recognize that it went beyond just the accusers. It went to the families. So we have to say, in an ultimate sense, they were sentenced to death by divine justice. It was a divine justice. It goes to show us the importance of being caught up in the sins of others. Now I want to say a word to you young people, especially, about your thinking about who you hang out with and what you do and what you take part in. Because if you hang out with the wrong people and you spend time with the wrong people and the wrong ideas and the wrong thinking, you will get caught up in the consequences of their sin because you are in it and with it. Sadly, these families, um, wives and children, were caught up in the consequences of their father's sin. It ought to say something to us as fathers as well and mothers to be careful that we are not putting our children into the sins of our own youth and our own reality that we live in. We can put things before our children that are stumbling blocks and they get caught up in the consequences of our sin. It is a sad case to realize that these families were put to death as well. But it is a reminder of God's ultimate divine retribution, as one writer put it. God will condemn sin ultimately and finally. And for all those who will not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be condemned for their sin eternally. But those who repent and believe in Christ, the debt and the guilt of your sin has been paid on the cross by him, and that debt is forgiven. And you will be able to stand before God, declared righteous before him through the righteousness of Christ alone and nothing of yourselves. But you must repent and believe in him. And when you continue in any sin, You must repent of that sin and then continue to fight against it and hate it. Well, thirdly, this morning, Daniel was proved right in the eyes of Darius. Daniel was proved right in the eyes of Darius. He was persecuted for not obeying the first commandment. And now he's proved right in the eyes of Darius. Darius decreed for all his people that Daniel's God was the true God. Now, did God need that? Did God now all of a sudden go, oh, thank you, Darius. I needed your commendation to all the peoples of uh, the Mediterranean area and the Far East. So, so thank you so much. Did, did God need that? No, he didn't need it. 
But by the actual happenings of providence, Darius is brought to this one conclusion. There's only one true God. Now, I'm not saying Darius was converted in its sense, but you have to recognize there's pretty strong language here. In verse 26a, he praised God as right and worthy. He praised God as right and worthy. He is the living God. In verse 26b, he praised God as living and eternal. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He praised God as living and eternal. And thirdly, he praised God as unalterable and all-powerful, 26c. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's strong language. Coming from a king who wants to recognize how powerful his own kingship is, now he's recognizing that Daniel's God has a kingdom, and not only does he have a kingdom, but it is a kingdom which is one which will not be destroyed. It's unalterable. And therefore, that means God is all-powerful. If you have a kingdom that can't be destroyed, that means you must be all-powerful because any enemy that would come against it, you will defeat them. He even goes as far as to say his dominion will be forever. His dominion will be forever. He is unalterable and all-powerful. But he also praised God as the deliverer and keeper of his people. He praised God as right and worthy, living and eternal, unalterable and all-powerful. And he praised God as the deliverer and keeper of his people. Verse 27, He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. That's really no small power if you think about it. If you're thrown into a cave and a stone is put over the entrance to the cave and there's a bunch of lions in there, you know, even if the lions are taking a nap for a while, eventually they're going to get around to eating you. I don't know what their hurry may be or what their weight may be, but eventually they're going to say to themselves, Mmm, dinner. And what are you going to do? I'll fight you with my right and my left hand. You're going to try to fend them off, and while their jaws crash down on you with thousands of square inches of power put down on your arms, they will crunch your bones, and they will eat you alive. And the king is recognizing this is great power because he actually shut their mouths. So God is one who delivers and keeps his people. There's always a moment which we need to stop and think. How powerful is our God? How great and mighty is our God? How wonderful is our God? So many times we're so wrapped up in trying to figure out our ways and our purposes for things we want to do and accomplish. But we need to ask ourselves, 
Who is our God? How great is he? How powerful is he? That he can thwart the plan of any king or government. Well, it leaves us to understand that at the end of all this, verse 28 tells us that Darius employed Daniel with great success. Even, or that is in the reign of Cyrus. Now, if you all were in Bible study a few weeks ago, you know that I think Darius and Cyrus are the same person. There's just two different titles here. Um, But we have to recognize that no matter what one thinks about that, this is a context to which God not only took care of Daniel in the lion's den, but then he takes care of him even afterwards. The care of our God is great and mighty. Well, this morning I want to leave you with three observations. I actually have four, but I won't be able to get to the fourth. I know I won't. The fourth is quite lengthy. I'll say some more things about it later because I think it's very important. Not only in the book of Daniel, but in the whole of Scripture. Firstly, no right worship occurs except by commandment of God. No right worship occurs except by commandment of God. Three things to notice under this. The Persian officials agreed to a false commandment of worship. That's what they they conjured it up. They all agreed to it because they said, Oh, king, we all agree. We've all gotten together and we all agree, which we know was a lie because Daniel didn't agree. But, okay, so they all agree. We all agree. What did they agree to? A false commandment of worship. That's what they agreed to. Secondly, the Persian officials were struck down like Nadab and Abihu. Remember Nadab and Abihu? They brought strange fire into the worship of God, and God struck them down. So it was with these Persian officials. They conjured it up. They created this decree, their own decree of worship, and who should be worshipped was not the one true living God, but Darius. And God struck them down like Nadab and Abihu. Thirdly, the Persian officials are an example of what is coming at the final judgment. You realize this is what the final judgment is about primarily, right? It's all those who desire to worship the one true living God rightly according to his purpose and his commands and all those who will not bow the knee. That's the difference between an unbeliever and a believer in its most elemental essence. An unbeliever is saying, I'll worship what I want to, who I want to, when I want to, and you can't tell me to do anything else because I'm going to do it my way. And a believer is saying, I'm going to submit to your command, God, the one who created me, that you alone are to be worshipped and I will have no other gods before you. That's the difference. And so we see a display briefly, of what's coming in the final judgment. Those Persian officials were put to death, and so it will be for all who will not bow and and prostrate themselves before the one true king, the Lord Jesus himself. They will be condemned eternally. I don't say that with happiness. I say it with sadness. 
But it's truthful that that's what the scripture preaches. And Jesus himself speaks more of that coming condemnation in hell than he does of heaven. Everybody wants to say, oh, Jesus, he's so sweet and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he was sweet enough that he said, you're of your father, the devil. That sounds pretty sweet, doesn't it? How many of you like somebody to walk up to you and say that all the time? Think they, you, oh, that Brandon, he, he's so sweet. You know, three times this week he told me I was of my father, the devil. I just love that Brandon. He's so sweet. It's not about whether Jesus is kind or gracious. We know he's gracious. What we need to know is that he's the son of God and he's serious. He does love his people. He does care for them. He cares for the whole of the world. And yet at the same time, he cares for right justice in the righteousness of his father. Number two, no one can thwart the plan of God. No right worship occurs except by commandment of God, and no one can thwart the plan of God. Just for reiteration, just remember, no government can thwart the plan of God. No government officials can thwart the plan of God. No wealthy person can thwart the plan of God. No wealthy corporation can thwart the plan of God. It's interesting to me. God himself is bringing to bear in the minds of people who love to drink Bud Light beer that they don't want to be told about all of this perversion. This is coming from mostly unconverted people, probably. Bud Light had a plan, didn't they? We'll support this perverted man who's trying to act like some little girl. Perversion to the core. And we'll promote it and put it on the side of this can. God says, fine. I'll use pagans and you'll lose $5 billion in a week. You don't think God had that worked out? I'm telling you right now, folks, it doesn't matter how wealthy a person is or a corporation is, they will not thwart the plan of God. He will deal with this world. My question to you, though, is will you be found in Him? Because it leads me to the last observation for this morning. No one will die except by the purpose and order of God. No one will die except by the purpose and order of God. Daniel's living proof of this, right? It's obvious this was not his time. His days and boundaries of habitation had been set before time began, as Paul said it. And it was not his time. These lions were not the end. It shows us the all-powerfulness of our God. And if for one moment that can't ring true in a sense of, of what's happening in the Scripture... I want you to make note of a modern sense of it. Jill Noble worked and prepared for years to run the Boston Marathon. She trained year after year. 
She ran different qualifying marathons. She adjusted her diet and her food, trying time and time again to be able to qualify for the Boston Marathon. In 2013, she tried to qualify and she failed by just just a few seconds. She was very disappointed. But even though she was really disappointed, she decided she would keep up with the 2013 Boston Marathon online. And while she was looking just a little bit at what was taking place, she recognized all the news flashes about the bombing at the finish line. Frantically in her mind, she started to try to put together based on her own previous times, where she might have been had she been in that race. She calculated that she would have probably been there only a minute before the bomb went off, which means that all of her family would have been standing at that finish line where the bombing happened. Three killed, 270 injured. Jill Noble had all her plans for herself and how all of her family would be there to support her and see her do it. But on that day, she realized God has his plan. He said, yes to Daniel, I will save you this way. And he said, no to Jill Noble, I will keep you this way. Our God is good and right. Amen? Let's praise him. Heavenly Father, your purpose is far beyond what we can fathom or imagine except what your word reveals to us. So we praise you and glorify you alone and ask your mercies upon us as we come to the time of the table that we would think wisely about our need for Christ. All glory and honor be unto you, the one true living God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.